0: to 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning's message is the 24th sermon in a series we've been going through this year in the letter that Peter wrote to the scattered tribes, to the elect exiles, I was thinking about the Protestant Reformation this week. There's a sister congregation in really in South Jersey, down in Cumberland County, and uh, Pastor Chris O'Brien asked me to speak at their church's Sunday evening Reformation service, which I think is October 29th or something like that. So, Chris and I, Pastor Chris and I, were talking about the Reformation and I'm reminded that the Protestant Reformation was not just a battle of the Bible, but it was a great spiritual battle as well. And according to one historian, and some of you may have heard of this, there's a a legend of a famous skirmish between the great reformer Martin Luther and the enemy, the devil. The legend goes like this in 1521, disguised as a knight, St. Martin began working on his incomparable translation of the New Testament from Greek into German. The devil was furious, furious and full of hellish rage. This is where the famous incident of throwing ink at the devil took place. Dreadful noises in his chamber at night would awaken him from sleep. Howling as of a dog could be heard at his door. And on one occasion, as he sat translating the New Testament, an apparition of the evil one in the form of a lion seemed to be walking round and round him and preparing to spring upon him. Seizing the weapon that came first into his hand, which happened to be his inkstand, Luther hurled it at the devil with such force that he put the fiend to flight and broke the plaster on the wall. Now we know for sure that Luther translated the New Testament into German, whether this actually happened only Luther knows. I happen to believe it. I happen to believe it. The fact is the spiritual invisible realm is not at all safe. It is populated by a vast host of forces which are opposed to God. Opposed to God's people and especially opposed to Jesus Christ. But the problem is that most of us are too numb or desensitized to the spiritual realm in our modern life. It's not like the devil has to work very hard to accomplish this, whether it's through being oversatiated in our diets, what we actually eat, or oversatiated in what we expose ourselves to on our smartphones and tablets and laptops and computer screens and TV screens our attention is effectively diverted, almost entirely, to the war against our souls. And then there's science, and the lie that science and measurement and weighing things and observing things and testing things can explain everything that we need to know. If there's one argument that's going to win the day in a modern conversation, it's going to be the argument that appeals to science. And even professing Christians who are rightly skeptical of some of these things, the devil comes around the side. And we're inclined, in general, to think that everything needs to have an explainable cause. And so we need to be awakened. You talk about woke. We need to be awakened to the reality of life as God has created it and as we have received it. There is a spiritual battle around us, and I've mentioned this recently, I believe. We can't see it unless a prophet opens our eyes to the fact that the skies are filled with armies opposed to God and an even greater army fighting on God's behalf. That's from Second Kings. And in Peter, the overwhelming challenge in charge of the, epistle, the first epistle of Peter is that you are to do good in this world. That your conduct, your way of life, should be characterized by the gospel. And that in your efforts to do good, suffering will result. And some of that suffering is the result of spiritual and satanic influence in your life. And so Satan, the enemy of our souls, is determined to set you off the path of what Peter is trying to redirect you to do, which is to do good, to be a... You've been blessed, to be a blessing. That's 1 Peter 3. You're to shine the light and the love of Christ such that people will see you and ask the question, what is the reason for the hope that lies within you? That's also 1 Peter 3. You're to leave behind the conduct that you inherited from your parents and grandparents if they weren't Christians. And as a born-again believer, you're to set off on a new path. Peter says, haven't you spent enough time doing those things that you used to do, those bad things? Instead, do good things. Honor God. Be holy as I am holy. This is the message of 1 Peter. And the suffering that comes from society makes that difficult, and before us this morning is the suffering and the difficulty that arises from spiritual temptation, either from Satan himself or one of his demons. And the call that Peter gives to you this morning, and Jesus' appeal to the church this morning, is that you must stand and fight, which is my sermon's title. Stand and fight. And I want to show you two reasons from Scripture this morning why you should stand and fight this battle. And I'm going to conclude with some practical applications on just exactly how God wants you to fight this battle. So let's begin by reading God's Word. And keep in mind, as we read the Scriptures... Satan and all of his enemies hate the reading of the scriptures. And so when I pray that the words of my mouth, as I'm going to do, and the thoughts of our heart be pleasing in his sight, I'm praying against the enemy that not one seed of the word of God would be wasted in your hearts this morning. So pay attention. Let's read God's word, and then we'll ask God to bless the preaching of the word. 1 Peter Chapter five and verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, your word has been read, and now your people are seeking to hear from the head of the church, which is not the preacher, it's not a pastor, it's Jesus. And so may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and questions and even the distractions that might come in, may all of these things, Lord, for, those, for the one who speaks and those who hear, may we be pleasing in your sight And as I've just mentioned, Father, now I ask in prayer, may your word, which is like a seed, fall on good soil, and may the enemy be kept at bay, not snatching the word away, which he loves to do, but that we might bear fruit from its proclamation and explanation. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why stand and fight? Two reasons. The first reason in our text is that you face a mighty foe. You face a mighty foe. The reason that you need to stand and fight is that you face a mighty foe. Now, you might think that doesn't make sense. If you're weak and you face a mighty foe, why on earth would you stand and fight? Instead, you should turn around and run the other direction. And that's actually a good point. And that's one way we fight, is by running away. My favorite example of running away as a way of fighting the spiritual battle is the case of Joseph in Genesis 38 and 39 when he was tempted to adultery. And instead of standing and fighting, he ran away, which was his own way of doing battle. The fact of the matter is you don't have a choice to fight because if you turn and run instead of fighting if running is not the kind of fighting that you're supposed to be doing in other words you will be devoured according to the bible now i don't know about you but i used to i used to run for exercise and still occasionally i'm i'm moved to run to exercise i often regret it after such situations. Nevertheless my son is much faster than I am. He almost broke a four-minute mile. Even my son cannot outrun a lion on the prowl who is hungry and ready to devour him. I'm told that these big cats run 20, 30, 40 miles an hour a cheetah runs something like at top speed, not for very long long enough to catch you 70 miles an hour you can't outrun him and so faced with the option of running and being devoured or standing and fighting you need to stand and fight I mentioned Martin Luther in my opening remarks in, his famous, in a famous hymn which we're gonna sing this morning. Here's how he describes how serious this spiritual battle is. For still our ancient foe, that's Satan, doth seek to work us woe. Woe is horror, misery, loss, loneliness, depression, discouragement, wounding, maiming and killing. Our our ancient foe seeks to work us woe, Luther says. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate, listen to this, on earth is not his equal. we need to stand and fight. On earth is not his equal. Who is Satan anyway? Satan is a fallen angel whose original name may have been Lucifer which comes from the Latin word for light, the shining one. He may have been the chief angel Only a few angels are named in the Bible. Michael is one of them. He may have been even higher than Michael before his fall. And Jesus, before his incarnation in the triune majesty of eternity past, recalling this moment in time, says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So Jesus witnessed the downfall of Lucifer, according to the Bible. The Bible is very spare in details on this moment in history. There's nothing about it in Genesis, nothing directly about it in Genesis, although the tempter does show up in Genesis chapter 3. We perhaps get a hint of the fall of Satan from glory in Isaiah chapter 14. Just a hint. And he indeed is the greatest, most powerful, creature on earth. Luther is 100% correct when he writes that in his hymn. On earth is not his equal. As a created being, he has powers far and above any human being. But notice, he is a created being. You say, well, how did God create Satan? Well, God didn't create Satan. God created Lucifer, amongst all of the angelic host who were worshiping God. And in a mystery that the Bible does not explain, but it asserts it as an established fact, Satan rebelled against God. In pride, he raised himself up over God. And the question that he asked of Eve, did God really say? He first asked it himself. He was the first one to question God in his heart. The Bible describes Satan as the god of this world, and he doesn't work alone. He's the commander of a vast, highly organized army of minions or fellow demonic servants, the fallen angels, a third of them apparently. Evil spirits which scripture sometimes describes as powers, sometimes describes as principalities, Sometimes describes as evil forces, <coughs> sometimes simply describes them as demons <coughs> or devils. And Satan or the devil has three main avenues of attack, which also relate to the way that he's described in the Bible. His names, in other words. Satanas means enemy devil means double-tongued and here he is an accuser in our passage be watchful your adversary verse 8 or accuser the devil the double-tongued diabolos prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour because he is a satanas satan he is a satan he is an enemy What does the devil do as an accuser? That's the one term that's used here explicitly in our text. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your accuser, your adversary, you can circle it, adversary and accuser are synonyms here. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. An accuser is someone who is like a prosecuting attorney in a court of law and I like to watch legal shows and um, you know the courtroom drama. I don't know if you ever read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. This is a courtroom novel, Atticus Finch. Satan is an accuser, and according to our text, he is an accuser who is accusing you And what does he accuse you of? What is the nature of Satan's accusations? I find, in my experience and in reading scripture, they are more often in the form of statements, sometimes disguised as questions. I mentioned Eve. Did God really say? This isn't a question. He's saying, God didn't say. But... By coding the statement in the form of a question, it seems to take some of the the rebellious edge off of it. I'd give my dog medication sometimes and I wrap it in peanut butter. He gobbles it right down. And there's something about our fallen human nature that when we're confronted with a question, we gobble it right down. Maybe if Satan appeared in a giant horned red cape, fangs with a tail and he says God didn't say that we'd be alerted to his his scheme and we'd stand firm which is what Peter is telling us to do we'd stand and fight easily but as an accuser isn't it true he embeds the answer as bait in the very form of the question Isn't it true, God doesn't love you? Well, he set you up right now. And then he doesn't, he's only one being, by the way. Satan is not omnipresent. So he doesn't show up. He sends a demon, perhaps particularly suited to your temperament, and formulates the question In and through some human agent, perhaps. Perhaps a suggestion on the radio or in a podcast or in a YouTube video. Perhaps through the life and the example of some famous person that you admire. Does God really love you? Does God really exist? Questioning the existence of God is, is not something that I struggle with. Some of my very good friends are atheists and struggle with the belief in the existence of a divine being. One reason I love teaching science is because I believe that God is the creator. And I can't look at the world without seeing the fingerprints the greatest artist, but some people aren't like me. And they swallow the, the peanut butter pill, if you will, the question that says, if God is real, then why can't I see him? Why can't he talk to me? And they put forward What seems like very reasonable requests of the Almighty. Just heal my broken arm and I'll believe in you. Just send me an email and I'll be be in church next Sunday. Or this one, the agnostic temptation if God is real, whether he's real or not, I don't know. Does it even matter? I do struggle with this at times am I really forgiven godly mature Christians will tell us that we're to take a glance at our sin just enough to know its evil nature and then turn from it unto God that repentance doesn't mean we're wallowing in our guilt it means acknowledging our guilt confessing our sin and running to Christ. But some of us have a temperament that says we're gonna spend way too much time in our guilt and in our past. And this is a temptation from the accuser. Are you really forgiven? I was recently reading in a series of sermons by a great English pastor of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, about the blood of Christ. And if you read this in 1 John chapter 1, what the apostle John writes there, we don't need to put our sins under the blood. John says that our sins are under the blood. We need to believe the gospel. Am I really forgiven? Can the scriptures really help? There's an anecdote where the famous atheist, 20th century atheist W.C. Fields is found on his deathbed flipping through the pages of the Bible and his wife, shocked. W.C., what are you doing? Loopholes, my dear, looking for loopholes. Are the scriptures really helpful Is it a sufficient word that we've been given? Do I need more than the Bible? How helpful is psychology? How helpful is sociology? How helpful is uh, science and all the other fields, literature and so forth and history? Can the scriptures really help me today where I'm struggling? Is there a word, a living word before me? He's an accuser. He's also a liar. Your adversary, the devil, the word for devil is diabolos. I'm saying that means a, a double tongued person. He says one thing but means another. And in John chapter 8, we have the famous statement from Jesus saying that Satan, the devil, is the father of lies. He isn't just a liar. All deceit, all lies originate with, with him. So if you're holding a lie right now in your mind, some falsehood, the source of that falsehood is Satan. Perhaps not proximately. Perhaps you cooked it up in your own thinking. If I say this and say I was here then and there and I did that and didn't do that and I spent this but not that and you're, you know, you know how lying works. Yes, yes, we know how lying works. We use our brains, our, our, our reasonable, logical minds, and we try to think through a different version of what actually happened and Satan is the father of lies. He's double-tongued. And the third office of Satan, not only is he accuser and a liar, but he's a tempter. Now James tells us in James 1.14 that our temptations do not come from God. That's absolutely clear. So in the Lord's Prayer, when you're praying, lead us not into temptation, you're not asking God to not tempt you. You're praying... 1 Corinthians 10.13, that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond anything you can bear. Saying, God, you know my frame. You know I am made of dust. Keep me from those places where I will fail in my love for you. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. When I find myself overwhelmed by temptation, don't bury me in it, God. Be the sovereign rescuer that you are. Well, Satan is the opposite. He's the tempter. He's piling on temptations, thoughts, people, places, circumstances, words, messages. James says temptations do not come from God. They come from within your own heart. Well, how did they get there? Where did those temptations come from? Well, the the biblical answer is the world, the flesh, and the devil. One of those three places but they're all related because if the temptations come from the world Satan is what he's the god of this world he's the prince of this world and that aspect not the good green, created world of God but the fallen twisted rebellious world of Satan's realm Satan is the prince of that domain so if the temptations come from the world they came from him the flesh The flesh is your own fallen nature. It's your inclination, C.S. Lewis says, you're bent towards sin and rebellion and evil. And apart from the grace of God, you can't do what is pleasing to God. And so Satan, when he presents something that is in rebellion against God, it finds a friend in your flesh, And so in that degree, Satan activates the flesh when sin and temptation are presented to you as a fallen creature. And if you're not walking in the Spirit of God, you will not resist that temptation. By the way, I said walking in the Spirit of God. I'm going to touch on this a little bit later. A born-again Christian cannot, cannot be possessed by Satan. That is the testimony of the entire Bible. You can be tempted, but you cannot be possessed. Now, if you're not a Christian, I have no idea who's at the helm of your life. And I would not be surprised if it's a devil or Satan himself. But if you're a Christian and you believe that Jesus died for your sins, You are filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no room for Satan in your heart. Temptation, yes. So he's an accuser, he's a liar, and he's a tempter. You know, the believer has many enemies in the Bible, but Satan far exceeds them. That's why he's described in our passage as a roaring lion, prowling, a prowling lion. Roaring, devouring lion. It's quite vivid. Prowling means Satan is walking around. His haunts. Uh, lions are, are animals with, with turf. So there's only one lion in, in that turf. You know what I'm saying? Satan's turf is the whole world. And in Job chapter 1 and 2, Satan is walking about the earth. Where did you come from, Satan? God asks. As I came from prowling around. Where do you think, God? I'm in my haunts. I'm in my domain. I've been prowling around the earth seeking someone to devour. Well, have you considered my servant Job for dinner? So Satan is prowling and he's growling. He's roaring. He's angry. He has a vendetta He is passionate in his evil designs. He is determined. And he's hungry. He's not just looking for a meal. He's going to swallow you with one bite. He's seeking someone to devour. He's going to open his jaws and engulf you. Your entire life will be swallowed by the enemy of souls. So Satan is horrible and cruel because he is bent and determined and motivated by nothing less than your utter destruction. And I don't think this means you're going to die because if you get mauled by a lion with the paw of a lion, you're going to be eaten, but much of your corpse will remain is my guess. It's disgusting, but that's what we're dealing with. No, I think, I think Satan might do that for some, but as they say, tiger dead, lion dead, and a spider bite dead is still dead. And someone who's dead by, by poisoning or by the bite of a spider might be lying in bed and looking very healthy, at least to the casual observer. There's no questioning that if you get devoured by a lion, You're obviously dead. No, it may not mean death. It may mean simply turning your back on one of the promises of God. Minimizing God's grace in your life or in someone else's. Turning to Jesus only occasionally. And neglecting, not denying, just neglecting his word. So, you face a mighty foe, and that's why you need to stand and fight. The second reason you need to stand and fight the spiritual battle is not just you face a mighty foe, because if that were the case, this is like Christians in the arena in ancient Rome we're going to die. The reason to fight isn't just the ferocity or the determination of the enemy, it's also the power of your God. Because while Satan is a mighty foe, God is an even mightier God. You stand and fight because you serve a mighty God. And I mentioned Job, this is a great case in point. The reason Satan winds up in the presence of God in the first place is because it was the time when the sons of God, which is to say the spiritual beings, present themselves before Jehovah God. And apparently there's a, a muster or a roll call. We'll say it's a quarterly roll call. Maybe it's monthly. I have no idea. But it was that time God mustered up all the, all the hosts of heaven and Satan is required To stand in line with all the rest at the summoning and beckoning of Almighty God. That's why one of the names of God is uh, Lord Jehovah Sabaoth, which is Lord God of Armies. He's not just the Lord over human armies. He is. He's enthroned over the circle of the earth, and the kings of the earth are a drop in the bucket. Isaiah chapter 40, according to God. You know, you're you're watering your plants and all the nations are in that that watering can and God is holding the can but he isn't just god of human armies he's god of all the armies of heaven lord god yahweh sabaoth and so when he musters all of his armies they all have to sh- show up and do his bidding so we serve a mightier god and he's mightier because while satan has a vast realm he walks around he he goes through asia and africa and he goes through north america and even in the arctics he's in the poles he's in the subterranean depths of the ocean God is the God of everything. Satan is the prince of the powers of the air, and God is the prince of the princes. And while Satan can wreak havoc, the havoc ultimately is not his. Because while evil comes from Satan, and the world, and our own fallen nature... God is sovereign and in control. He is a mightier God because he is sovereign over the works of Satan. And so in this scene in Job chapter 1 and 2, when when Satan answers the roll call and stands in line with all of the other hosts and God points him out, rightly so, because he's, he's the prince, where have you been and what are you doing? God gives Satan his, his instructions, his permission, I should say. Satan accuses Job, ah, Job only loves you because he's, he's the richest man in the world. And God says, you may test him, but only this far. The Bible says that the oceans know the limit that God has set for them, and Satan cannot come up any farther than the tides allow. Now, admittedly, we experience floods in our lives, a a high tide or even a, a tsunami where we feel like we're drowning in temptation and evil and darkness. Perhaps even some of you have had long seasons where you're underwater with the sin that is engulfing and over the billows, overwhelming me, the, the the waves in Scripture so often describe the chaotic world of sin, and you're drowning. You know, it's Jesus in the boat. He's asleep in the stern, and the disciples said, "Don't you care about us, Christ?" And he said, "You have little faith." So these oceans can only go so far, and God says. You can can take his things, but you can't touch the man. And in the second episode, in chapter 2, you can touch the man, but you cannot kill him. And so for the next 34 chapters, we have Job's dialogue with God and with his unhelpful friends and his efforts to make sense of the temptations that have fallen to him. He isn't perfect in that book, by the way. He's a mightier God because he defeated our accuser. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The picture is of of an ancient Roman scroll And on the scroll are all the things that you did wrong, your criminal record, your resume of rebellion. And Satan is pictured as reading it with glee. Ha! And Paul says, in that scene, when the prosecuting attorney is reading off all the sins, everyone you've ever committed, he says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. and I love this, it is finished. Fini, the end. See, for his elect people, that cross 2,000 years ago, you weren't even born and your sins are paid for in full. The debt is canceled, you are free. But he didn't end by nailing it to the cross Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and exposed them to open shame. God is seen here as mocking, openly mocking the enemy of your soul, the one that you take so seriously and you listen to so carefully. Almighty God is leaning back and laughing at the enemy, saying you have nothing on my people, nothing at all. You're, you're, You're shooting at them with a with a BB gun, a, a Nerf gun. You cannot harm them. They are my forgiven people. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. He is the opposite of an accuser. He's a redeemer and a favorite word for jesus in the gospel of john is that he is your paraclete he is your comforter in and through the holy spirit so jeremiah says this the lord of hosts says the people of israel are oppressed and accused and the people of judah with them all who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. It's a picture of bondage and exile. And so we have Psalm 137, By the waters of Babylon I sat down and wept, and the enemies of God mocked me, saying, Sing us another one of those songs of Zion, as they're in their drinking fests. How can I sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? But in response, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 50, 34, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to all of his enemies. You see, Sabbath and Sabaoth rhyme, I think, on purpose because he's the God of armies, because he gives rest to all the wars in the earth. Be still and know that I am God isn't a devotional, it's a a call to leave behind your idolatrous reverence of the work of the enemy. And it's idolatrous whether you actually bow before an idol of Satan and open up Anton LaVey's satanic verses and cite them with glee. That's clearly idolatry. Or if you walk around with a limp and a frown as if Jesus never died for your sins and he's still in the grave. It's idolatry. The first commandment is preceded by a statement of your Redeemer. I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? Worship me, I have redeemed you. And not only that, he defeated the tempter in the wilderness. I don't have time to read it, but you should read it today with your families or in your small group, Luke chapter four, one through 13. Every, every temptation, it says in verse 13, everyone, now only three are recorded. Turn, this bread into st- turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle and worship me. But Luke says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke says, after Satan had finished every temptation. You see, Christians read, the temptations in the wilderness as their champion vicariously submitting to, struggling with, wrestling with the temptations of the enemy and winning in our place. So when Luke says Jesus had, when Satan had finished every temptation, he meant there is no temptation that you will ever face that Jesus hasn't already dealt with and of course, he defeated the liar as well, because he not only speaks the truth, but embodies the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. So Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I say soon because our text says resist him, firm in your faith, verse 9 knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you have suffered a little while soon the god of peace will crush satan under your feet that's paul's version peter's version is after you have suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ and he will not be denied he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. A mighty fortress, again the hymn, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side? The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, you, you now know Hebrew. Lord God of armies. That's his name. From age to age, the same, and he must. He has, he is, and he must win the battle. Well, to conclude, how do we fight? Briefly, with God's word. I mentioned Luke 4, 1 through 13. Each time Jesus quotes the Bible, in his battle with the adversary. And I'm afraid we do not consume enough scripture in order to stand and fight the enemy. We do not consume enough scripture. And I'm thinking and praying about taking up the challenge of memorizing an extended portion of scripture this fall. And if you'd like to join me in that, it would be because you know you need to stand and fight so pray about it and yes I saw that hand and if we're immersed in God's Word we will know that he is not omnipotent though it seems like he is and he cannot indwell you though he can do his best to make your life miserable how do you fight with God's Word you also fight by God's Spirit it's the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, which unites you to Christ. Do you know this? It's called the believer's bond of union. Write that down. Remember it. The thing that ties you to Christ is faith in the Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you're united to the exalted Christ. And so when Paul says, walk in the Spirit, He's saying, deepen, and strengthen your union with Christ by leaning into the Holy Spirit, listening to the Spirit, following the Spirit, obeying the Spirit, and definitely not lying to the Holy Spirit as Ananias and Sapphira did in Acts chapter 5. The Spirit also is a spirit of a sound and sober mind. as The text tells us that you must be sober-minded and watchful, and the Spirit uh, are, are, you, are you drunk with wine? No, sirs, it is but nine in the morning. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot be, be drunk and be filled with the Spirit at the same time. So sobriety in your eating and your drinking and your thinking and your living is called for in this spiritual battle. And you need to be watchful in the Spirit. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And finally, your brethren throughout the world. The text tells us, be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Luther isn't explicit in his hymn about this, but it's there, the importance of the church, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, Us. Not me. You don't fight alone. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Everyone just like you, every Christian, a blood-bought, born-again believer, brother or sister, we are all struggling with you, like you, and this struggle has to be, you have to go through it. After a little while, it will be done. But it's part of the process of you becoming Christ-like. And he intends to have a, a pure, radiant bride. And that means through suffering and discipline and a targeted, sovereign exposure to temptation and more victories than failures in the end, he will finish his work in the world. Sanctification is never solo. Neither is the fight against the enemy. Christians are enmeshed in a universal, universal, eschatological battle between good and evil between God and the devil and as long as this conflict rages suffering is the normal state not just for you but for the church so take a good look are you isolated from the church and are you struggling let's pray father in heaven we thank you that this spiritual battle is real no matter what anyone might say. And just as Elisha pointed to the heavens and revealed to his trembling friend the overwhelming majority that we have on our side, I pray that you would unveil from our eyes unbelief secularism and worldliness and drunkenness and sleepiness and all the things that have numbed us to the truth of the battle that is raging. Don't just show us the battle, Lord. Show us that the victory is ours. For greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.